0: Thank you, Amanda. Appreciate it. It's good to have you. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy. And uh, I get the privilege of getting to speak and getting to teach on Sundays. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to get to meet you maybe after the service just to shake your hand and get your name. And just hear a little bit about your story. Um, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 5. We are on the downhill Last stretch of the book of First Peter. We have this week and next week, and then we will be done with the book. Um, it's been a great—it's been a great book for us as a church. Um, Peter has been talking to a church in trouble this whole time. As we looked in this series called "Home, but Not Home," Peter is speaking to exiles who are traveling through this world. This is where we live. This is our address. This is our city. This is where we live and play and work and. But but at the same time, this is not our home. It's not our home. So he's talking to a people that are in danger. They're not about to be persecuted. They're in the midst of persecution right now. And so he's talking, and we looked at this in the earlier weeks, he's talking to a people that are disconnected. They have a limited scope and view of each other. They're disconnected from each other. They're actually disconnected from themselves too because they are being persecuted. They're having to quarantine themselves. They're actually disconnected from what tomorrow looks like. It's been a very difficult season, so I just want to remind you of the context. He is speaking to a church in trouble, and today he's going to address probably the most dangerous threat to this young church. And I'm gonna make the case it's probably the most dangerous threat we have for us today, us. It's not a pandemic, it's not a politician, It is gonna be pride. It's gonna be pride that damages the community today. You know, I want you to think about a rocket or a shuttle that's re-entering. If you've seen any movie in the last 10 years, there's always a movie about how dangerous it is whenever a rocket or a shuttle re-enters. The possibility of it breaking up upon re-entry. There's a lot of friction, there's a lot of heat. There's a lot of drama. And I just want you to keep that picture in your mind's eye because that is literally the danger that the church has as it re enters. The church has its own re entry as well as the pandemic is starting to recede and it is starting to recede. We, too, ourselves, we have maybe the danger of re entry, the church breaking up. The heat, the friction. The drama of it all. and In all honesty, as a leader in the church, I've been more concerned about this chapter of pandemic church. Not quarantine chapter. That was easy. Shutting everything down, going digital, that was simple. That was just math. This is calculus. (laughs) Trying to get a church to stay together and not have pride break us right in half. And already we're starting to see a little bit of reentry heat and friction. It's been anything but smooth, right? I mean, I'm thankful he's addressing this today on the day of a partner's meeting. Or, or if you're, maybe if you're from another church tradition, we have our members meeting today, I guess is what you would call it. But guess what? We're having it on Zoom, which is just evidence that things are not back to normal yet, right? I mean, how many of you even had a Zoom account three years ago? Now all I have to do is say the word, Zoom, and half of you are like, oh, my gosh, he said the word, you know? It's because we're on it all the time. Things are not back to normal. So Peter is speaking to a church in trouble, and he is speaking directly to you and to me today. So let's look at 1 Peter 5. If you didn't bring your Bible or if you don't have a phone that you could look it up on, it will be up on the screen. This is going to be the text that does all the heavy lifting for us today and shows us Christ more compellingly and more clear. This is Peter, and he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's the main idea of those seven verses, and that's going to be where we stop that passage today. And that is that pastors, shepherds, overseers, elders caretakers, they ought to be humble in serving the church who is likewise humble in how they greet and serve and live amongst each other. And that we are to cast our cares, our anxieties, our burdens to a God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what he's saying. Humility is the key word in all of this though. You probably picked that up. Humility is the key. And Peter is hes an expert in humility in much the same way that a jewel thief is an expert in security systems, right? He, he wasn't, his reputation is not being a super humble guy. But he did watch with his own two eyes as Jesus puts a towel around him. And you'll get this in John 13. You should do it on your own this week. Look at this passage in John 13. It's the passage of the foot washing. We're not going to go into it today. But by the way, that is what Maundy Thursday in a couple of weeks, that's what it celebrates. Whenever you hear people talk about Maundy Thursday, and you're like, what does that even mean? It is celebrating the memorial of the foot washing. And when that happens, Jesus is putting a towel around him. It's a towel of a servant. And he wasn't just washing feet because he had this hang up with nasty feet. He was doing it purely as an example of how we should serve each other. And now that was a demeaning job. It was usually reserved for the invisible people of society. And he watched this. This demeaning gesture. And then many years later, Peter would remember that and he would say, this is how we're supposed to live. As a church, starting with the leadership. Starting with the leadership. But eventually it's how all of us are supposed to live. Let me just tell you that your pastors love you here at Legacy. And over the years I've had an incredible honor serving alongside men who come to work with a towel on, I guess you could say. And as a church, we've resolved to only add men to the pastoral team who are comfortable leading with a towel. Comfortable with that. As a church, we've changed shape. We've grown. We've contracted. We've planted churches. We've grown again. We've contracted. We've moved. We've changed shape. And we've always had to flex the roles and how how our pastors operate together. I mean, what worked with us when we were in the living room way back in the day does not work anymore anymore. But we will always bend under the admonition that Peter is giving us here right now. As we adapt, we will always be a willing pastoral team, an eager pastoral team, and a humble one. Humble towards you and also humble towards each other. In fact, if you've been through our partnership class, we kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on how we relate to each other even as pastors. It's, it's a plural landscape. It's not one of a pyramid. It's not, I'm not the boss of legacy. Let me just put it that way. Right? We sit around a round table where we defer to each other. I don't have two votes. I, I, I get to communicate, and they defer that to me. There are things that I defer to them, and we interact with each other, but our board's symmetry requires we drop our pride by the door. It requires humility, or it does not work. If we come in demanding our preferences, it does not work. So why is this important for you to hear? Because most of you probably don't aspire to be a pastor or an elder, right? So this might sound like a piece of, of Peter's work that is to some of us and not all of us. That's not the case. It's likely, it's likely, very likely, that many of you won't be at Legacy Church for the rest of your lives. Okay? Okay? we could just be honest for a moment, I wish that was the case. I mean, you all are my favorite people. (laughs) I love you a bunch. I wish we could just ride till we die, you know, just go go all the way to the distance and be together for 100 years. It's probably not going to happen, though. 100 years ago, that might have been the case. When people were born and they lived and they died in the same city and they were part of the same church, that was kind of what we saw. But that's not really society anymore. I mean, you can work from pretty much anywhere in the country now. I mean, now it's actually looked to be kind of odd if you were born, lived, and died in the same place. Almost like there's something wrong with you. Now it's more culturally acceptable to move and to shift and to go from place to place. Now, I don't know why that's the case. I have some theories, different sermon, right? But let's just say statistically, if statistics are right for Knoxville, less than half of you will finish your story even in the city of Knoxville. Forget legacy. You won't finish here in this city. So, when choosing a local church to partner with in the future. Okay, and if you're watching by video, you might be in the in the process of doing that. Listen, if you're shopping for churches, <laughs> the pandemic did you a solid, right? Because no longer do you have to go through the awkward step of actually showing up to a place to find out if it's actually gonna work, you can just shop it online. You can look online. Listen, if the speaker stinks, you're probably not gonna wanna go and check it out, right? So what people are doing is they're shopping on YouTube. I don't blame you, that's what I would do. But Whenever you look for a church to partner with, here are some things I think you should seriously evaluate. Doctrine, number one, right? Doctrine, philosophy of ministry, I'd put up on that top shelf. Hospitality, are they a warm church? A solid sense of vision for the city, that belongs on the top shelf. But here's a big one, how the pastoral board operates. Because if they can't humbly serve each other, they will never humbly serve you. You've got to know that. Peter could care less in this moment about how impressive these men are in communication skills and entrepreneurial management or how fast they could fill a whiteboard up with their best and most brilliant thoughts. He could care less. If they are not humble, they are dangerous. They're dangerous. That's the point he's getting across right now. But then Peter pivots from speaking as a fellow pastor and elder to just a, a fellow partner just another person in the church alongside. And he says, be humble with each other because God is going to oppose the proud and he's gonna give grace to the humble. That's a phrase you've probably heard in the Bible a few times. You'll see it in James. James says it word for word. They get that from Proverbs 3. Here are the two points I want to make about pride today. One is that it is war against God. Two, it's war against each other. It's war against God as we oppose him. So there's a vertical contention and then we acidically break each other horizontally. We hurt each other. I mean, the the biggest problem about pride is not that it's annoying, which it is, right? We can all agree it's annoying. But the proud person sets him or herself up against God, and God in return sets himself up in opposition against them. And if you're like me, you probably thought, well, shouldn't God be able to get over that? I mean, he's mature enough, right? Can he step past that and not just be opposed to them just because they are opposed to him? The answer is no. God delights in being trusted. Let me say it this way. God deserves to be trusted. He's never broken a promise. He's never broken a covenant. He's never broken his word. He's always told the truth. He deserves to be trusted. Glory rightfully belongs to him. It doesn't belong to us. Now, when you and I, when we trust in ourselves, that's a form of self-glory. When we refuse to trust in him and we trust in ourselves, that is self-glory. When we trust in him, that's called worship. It's called worship. This is what we see in Revelation 4. We'll put this up on the screen so you can stay where you're at. If you have a Bible, it says this, Worthy are you, these are worshipers in the end of all ends, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see, being prideful, it, is, it does not mean just self-advertising and being obnoxious when you walk around, right? It doesn't mean that. It does mean that, but above all things, it means self-trust. Self-trust. That's what I need to nail down today. I need you to walk out of here knowing that because it captures a lot of people who don't walk into the room with a big swagger on them. It captures those of us who have more of a, a mild personality, a little bit more subdued. It's a big umbrella, this thing called self-trust, right? We typically think of a prideful person as one who walks in and struts around and flaunts themselves so that everybody adores them, and, and that is prideful, right, by the way. But we never think that we're that person, so we never see pride in ourselves. Or we think of a a prideful person as one who discounts all advice and they only stick in their own head and they never think that they're wrong. And and that is prideful. It is. But we don't ever think we're that person either, so we don't see our pride. So most people would not label themselves as prideful. But if pride is self-trust and self-glory, well, then we have some different questions to ask altogether. In fact, just where is it that your soul says out loud in your own mind, I don't need God here in this area. I'm good by myself. I trust God in some things, but not here. Here I just trust myself. Where is that for you? Wherever it is, that's pride. That is pride. Like when we mismanage money that God has given us to steward. It's, first of all, it's not our money, so it's theft. <laughs> it's theft of the highest order. But it's also pride. It's saying I trust God in many areas, maybe even with my own salvation, but when it comes down to the dollars, I don't trust you very much. Not enough to do what you say. Not enough to honor what you're giving me this money to do. Whenever we say, I want what my addictions can give me, so I'm going to invest in those because they give me satisfaction. Because God, you are not satisfying enough. That is one thing. That's mistrust and it's unbelief, but it's also pride anywhere in our life where we say, you are not good enough. I have this under control. That's self-glory. It's self-trust and it's pride. I mean, for some of you today, do you just feel like you're a million miles from God? Just a million miles. Like you pray, but you're not sure he hears you. You pray, but you're pretty sure you don't hear him. It's boring. This is boring. boring. Tomorrow morning you'll open up the Bible and it'll be boring to you. You're just thinking about God is boring. You just feel distant, disconnected, just lackadaisical about all of it. Could, could it be that pride has snuck in to some degree and brought opposition from a father that loves you but is not going to deal with the pride? Could it be that the pride in your life where you have failed to trust God and refused to trust God has set you up in opposition to God? It's really hard to build intimacy with someone that you've set up opposition against. It's really hard to be intimate with one you've declared war on. It's really difficult. That's just one problem with pride is the vertical aspect. The second problem with pride is that it is acidic to community because it puts self in front of others. It is the soul saying, me first, you last. Me first, above all things, you dead last. Which is a problem, obviously, because the gospel is a story of humility. Where God comes to the proud that are saying in the moment, me first. That's how he comes. He's not coming to nice people. He's coming to murderers and villains. Humility is the vantage point where others are first. Their ideas are first. Their desires are first. Their hopes are weightier than our hopes. Humility is putting our preferences down and lifting up the preferences of others. And humility also is able to preserve unity in something like this, even though we're all very different. We're all different. I was talking to Samuel, who's back there. You can't see him in the hole, running the screen. We are talking about rap music for way too long this morning because we're both big fans and connoisseurs of rap music. I, I bet half of you don't even care about rap music. We all have... We have various interests in who we vote for, what we eat, where we shop, we're different. But yet we could still have a deep unity, a resounding harmony, but we can't have it without humility. We cannot have it without humility. It only works with that. Now what society will do, society will pretend and it will shop to you that you can have unity and differences without Jesus. You don't need Jesus to have a a synergy, a chemistry together. You can take your differences, and we can all get along without Jesus. Listen, that's a cheap unity. That's a unity until it's hard. Without the gospel, unity only works if there's no heavy sacrifice. That's the only time it will work. You could be different, but not inconveniently different. Not inconveniently different. As soon as your differences cost me and make me have to sacrifice something and put my preferences down, well, that's going to break everything, right? Because the human soul always says, yeah, 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 but what about me? That's what the human soul says. I get the whole unity thing. We're all supposed to go forward. I get it. It's a new day. It's dawning. The pandemic. But, but, but what about me? I get it. I'm joining this community group, and it's supposed to be awesome because Luke keeps saying it is from the stage. But what about, what about me? What about me? What about me? We've been saying it since we were babies. What about me? And this is how God finds us. This is how he finds us. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. He finds us putting ourselves first, but pretending that we're not. (laughs) He finds us, maybe others oriented, but with a ceiling to it, right? With a level. And what he does with this gospel is he removes our need to be first. And he frees us to be last. Listen to me. He liberates us to be dead last. There is a freedom in being invisible. There is a freedom in not having your demands front and center in every room you walk into. There is a freedom. He frees us to look to the interests of others. He frees us to don ourselves with a towel to serve. He frees us. The gospel edits the soul's demand of what about me. And he turns us into a people that stick together like glue. And we look at each other and we say, what about you? What about you? You first Me second. So when our soul says, Who will care for me? God says through his gospel, I will. So we're free to cast our burdens and our anxieties on him. He catches them. And we're free to drop our demands by the door. And this is why the gospel is so good that he turns our position from one of opposition to one of grace. One of grace. That's what the gospel is. If God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, therein that, just that phrase alone is the pivot of the gospel. He found us as people that deserved opposition for eternity, and he gives us grace. God's goodness, his favor, his love, his adoration, totally despite us. Despite us throwing rocks at him as he comes close to us. That's a beautiful story, the story of the gospel. And the only response that makes sense for the human heart is one of self-distrust. That's what humility is, self-distrust. So I'm going to drill it down to a solo application, and then I'm going to spend the rest of our time on a communal application that I hope is going to be helpful for you. But the solo application is where do you find your heart and your soul saying most, what about me? What about me? Where do you feel like you must trust yourself? Where do you continually put yourself above others? Where is that for you? Proper humility is you casting your cares where your soul most wants to step in and trust in itself. But if we were to just zoom out and look at our communal application a little bit, I want to talk about how we're going to need humility to make it forward as a church. And, and I'd like to say just specifically Legacy Church. I have great hope that we're going to do just fine as a church. But I'm just talking also the Church of Knoxville, the, the, the Church of the Appalachian South of America, of the West. Zoom out as far as you want. And so there's a, a model that I've been working on and I'm borrowing more from our Acts 29 Church in Minneapolis, just blocks away from where all the riots have been. And he came up with this. We're going to put this up. This will be a helpful rubric if you can go and put up the five people. There are going to be five categories. Listen, no matter what we deal with as a church, we're going to be sitting on a spectrum, okay? So if you're watching at home and you can't see this, there's five little silhouettes, right? And we're going to have five labels, one for each one. Listen, listen. Don't think I'm making fun of you. I mean, I might be making fun of you as we go through this, but I've been in all five, so I'm just making fun of myself too, right? (laughs) So I'm gonna let you know, I've been all over this spectrum, but the church sits on a spectrum that's gonna require humility or we're not gonna be able to move forward. So you can put any flashpoint you want in there. We're gonna use the pandemic because it's familiar to us. And we're gonna go to the chaotic personality. The chaotic personality are those that are filled not with anxiety, but an angry, anxious fear. They struggle with anxiety and they trust in themselves to control all the variables, try to keep them spinning correctly and not out of control. This person is the one that probably bought all the toilet paper in the earlier days about a year ago. They were double masking long before it was cool to do that. You might be watching this as a chaotic, I doubt you're here though. You're probably watching online because it's hard for you to leave the house because you've had anxiety even before the pandemic. If I could just be honest and maybe a little transparent, a lot of my life is spent in the first two categories. I'm an anxious personality. I get get the chaotic person. But this anxiety presents itself as an anger sometimes. This would be the person that yells at others if they don't have a mask on or yells at others if they're standing just a little bit too close. So their fear is demonstrative, right? So right after the, the, the pandemic started, when I was running down Sequoia Hills on the other side of the road, a, a woman yelled at me for not having a mask on, although I was running and we were outside, right? This, this is more of that type of a person. They're angry at rule breakers. So their key struggle is going to be to trust God, and rather they're going to prefer to trust in their own ability to keep themselves safe and to keep themselves solvent. That's where this is at. Let me just tell you, if you're in this chaotic Personality, and again, I I can be here easily. You need to know that this is a pride. Might not feel like it, right? It's a pride, it's self trust. It's self trust. Me first. God cannot be trusted, He is not in control of what's going on in this scary world. But if we were to move one step across the spectrum, we're going to find the cautious person. The cautious person are those with real concerns. And sometimes they can lean towards a fearful reaction. I feel like I live probably most of my life here. Maybe they are immunocompromised. Maybe they know somebody who is. Maybe they lost somebody to COVID, but it's real to them, right? It's close to home. These folks are going to follow all the rules, They're going to look at all the executive orders that are passed down and they're going to read them maybe twice to make sure that they don't break any of the rules. And whenever they visit someplace else, they're going to make sure that they ask the right precautionary questions to make sure everybody else in the room is going to follow the rules the way that they are. They also are a little bit less likely to show up to gatherings of any size. And if they do show up to a gathering, it won't be the people with a mask that they see. It'll be the people without a mask that they see. Those will be the ones that stand out to them. And that's going to build a frustration. I think pregnant moms can be here. Moms with new babies can be in much more of a cautious posture, and rightfully so, right? Rightfully so. Here's the big difference between the cautious and the chaotic, is that the cautious are not knee-jerk angry. They're not knee-jerk furious, maybe frustrated, but they're not going to flip a breaker on somebody that's standing a little bit too close to them, okay? Okay. Their struggle might be a little different. It might be, am I living out of my anxiety? Am I being chaotic? Am I being too cautious? Just trying to navigate where they're at would be difficult. Listen, for these two that I've already named out, the chaotic and the cautious, I'm speaking as president of the anxious club. To the rest of you who looked at that, and that was like Greek to you, right? Let me tell you what will not work. Mockery and shame will not get the job done. If you're trying to help this anxious personality, shame isn't going to help. Mockery is not going to help. What they need is the gospel. What I need to hear is the gospel. And we're going to talk about what that gospel application is in just a moment. But if we move one more step into the careful person, this is in the middle. Doesn't mean it's the best, okay? It's not the best. But these are those who act like they probably normally did when someone had the flu, right? They take precautions to match what they've always taken, maybe plus 10% or so. They don't don't let the virus completely reorder their life, but they know it's a thing. They agree it's a thing. They're still having friends over anytime they want, but it's a case-by-case basis because of the caution level. They know half a million people have died from this, maybe more, and they're sensitive to it, but they're not fearful, not fearful, right? They might be waiting for a vaccine, where it makes sense for their life and happy to step up and get a vaccine, but the vaccine wasn't their new Jesus. So their key struggle, I'm finding, is just refereeing the people on both sides of the spectrum. Family, friends, community, it's difficult because they feel like they might need to slide one way or the other. Then when we move one step over, it's the carefree person These are folks who are upset that after the curve was flattened, the precautions didn't go away, right? They likely don't have a decorated mask. (laughs) They probably got a free one somewhere and they've been rocking the same free mask for about a year now. These are the ones that will post on social media that there is no science to match the response that we are seeing right now. There's no science to back it up, they're very math oriented. Furious that churches shut down, that gyms shut down, that restaurants shut down. They understand that yes, people are dying, but do the math. Sure, we get it, lots of people are dying, it's horrible, but do the math. A lot of studies being quoted. These are people that are going to live their life. They're going to have their friends over. They're likely to ignore the mask thing. They might have one in their car, but they will be frustrated, and they might roll their eyes when you're not looking if you ask them to put one on. Okay? A little bit more carefree. A little bit more carefree. Their key struggle is going to be pride in the form of judging others, looking at other people as sheep with no courage, with no brain, with no logic. It's going to be their struggle. And then when we get to the very other end, which I know you all are waiting for, you're like, what is that? Is that me? It's the caustic one. These are those who refuse to wear a mask because it's God given right for them not to wear their mask, right? They probably don't even own a mask because they burned it at the courthouse steps this week. These are the ones that canceled their Costco membership as soon as they said everyone must wear a mask before they realized that everybody was going to do that. And now they don't have a Costco membership. Now their response is not math-driven. They're just angry and they're filled with resentment. They're angry, and I get it. In fact, a lot of their views are considered conspiracy theory views by a lot of their friends and their family, but that just reinforces their posture, right? They feel if they are silenced, then the devil wins. If they are silenced, then then the wrong thing wins. So they speak extra loud and they use provocative words to make sure to get everyone's attention. Listen, they're a lot of fun during Thanksgiving, right? To get them all riled up on something and just let them go for the next hour. But after a solid year of social media grenades, it just feels a little toxic, right? Especially in the church. Their key struggle is going to be considering others first, whenever they are positive that they're right and they're positive everybody else is wrong. It's gonna be a struggle. So let me just say, as as people that love those who are on the other end of the scale, what they can't have, they feel, this is what they feel like for the caustic and the carefree person, they feel like something's being stolen from them. Their convictions, their resolve, their freedoms are being demanded from them. Listen, anytime, this is just general, anytime you see somebody angry, they feel like something's being stolen from them. That's why they're angry. That's our drip pan emotion when we feel like something's being taken from us is anger. That's why they are so angry. And you can already see how everyone's shouting over each other. Anger on both sides, right? Friends, listen, this is the church. We sit on a spectrum. The church of Jesus change the flashpoint. Make it make it racial trauma, make it politics. Make it whatever third rail you want to stick up there. The church of Jesus Christ sits on a spectrum that requires humility or this breaks up upon reentry. This won't make it. My admonition for those of you balancing on the edges, come to the middle. Take a step in. Join the rest of us. I get it. I get it. We instinctively start out on the fringes, but you cannot live there. You can't live there. And yes, this requires putting down trust in yourself, and it requires putting down contempt for others. This is what builds community. Community hinges on you and me dropping our preferences and coming together with humble postures. That's what community is. It's more than just a sum of individuals. It's more than just a roomful of people, right? It's a collection of those of us who have laid some sort of a preference down for the good of the whole. In the same shape that Jesus did when He came and put on a towel and humbled himself to build something very beautiful. Now, in the West, in Knoxville, we're in danger of losing community. Certainly you've seen this, you've felt it because of our pride of holding on to our demands and our preferences with a white knuckle. I'll tell you his legacy. Our goal as a church has not been to get back to normal as fast as possible. I've that's a pretty dumb goal, I think. But our goal has been to maintain this rugged devotion to the gospel and grow forward in unity. In whatever shape that takes, to grow forward in unity. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Dwelling in unity has had to look very different at different times over the last year, Right? whether it's across a Zoom screen or over a phone or 10 feet away over a backyard fence or or, or in a room but everyone's double masked or or whatever it's had to look like for you. We've had to figure out how to dwell together in unity. So let me just say to the chaotic, I am not saying stop being a wimp and come to church. If you hear that, you're not hearing me. That's not going to do anything but you shame as a lever and again, as a person given to anxieties, it's never been helpful for me when people have told me something like that. What I've needed is the gospel. The gospel that says that God is in control of every breath, every virus, every death, every molecule. He is in control. I'm out of control, but he is in control and he has never lost control. Even when brutes and villains were destroying his son, he was not out of control. When Jesus was a corpse and being pushed into a tomb, he was not out of control. God has never broken a promise. He's never been out of control. It says this in Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John 16, 13, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in our text today, verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, my petition is not to return to a gathering. My petition to the chaotic is to return to community in whatever way that looks, and you've had a year to figure it out. A year to figure it out. In a world of comorbidities and underlying cautions and compromised health, and I know it's hard, and I know it takes a ton of work, but after 370 days, if you're still isolated and have no one in your life, that's not the virus doing that, friend, that's you. It's you. And Hebrews has a strong word for us. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Anxious person to anxious person, trusting God. Trusting God, not yourself. Because trusting in yourself, that's just as prideful before God as one who is openly boastful and it invites the same opposition. Now, to the caustic, to the other end of the scale, this is not a petition for you to just abandon all of your convictions, all of your resolve, but to maybe measure your freedoms in such a way that you can keep your freedoms as long as it serves the fellow person. It's hard. I understand that. But you need to know you are free to lay your preferences down. That's what a freedom is, right? Galatians 5, Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, and we are. It's one of the the beautiful ramifications of the gospel. We're called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Romans 12, St. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Listen, if you're not free to put on a mask for the good of those around you, when the people around you would really love for you to put on a mask, you don't understand freedom and you've lost view of the gospel. You've lost view of it. Because the gospel is a story of laying our rights down, laying our preferences down, in the same shape of Jesus who also walked, laying his freedoms down, laying his rights down, and not demanding his rights. Your struggle, friend, is going to be to, you're going to want to take your foot off the gas and demand that everybody just walk to your speed. You see, legacy is bound to have re-entry burns, heat, and friction, and drama and danger. But a community full of people trying to increase others and outdo each other in honor and carry themselves with a humble posture and leave self-trust by the door, well, we've got a shot then. The church has a shot then. Go ahead and stand with me. We're gonna, I've gone too long. We're gonna we're gonna finish this out with communion. And if you're here, listen to me. If you're here and you're a skeptic, or you're searching, or maybe you're searching, but you're kind of a skeptic. I did that for a few years of my life, right? Hated Jesus, intrigued by Jesus all at the same time. If that's you, listen, I want you to hear it whenever he says God opposes the proud. That is no joke, that is no joke. Your pride has stolen glory from God as you've trusted in yourself, and that friend invites opposition. It invites opposition. Your pathway to life is self-distrust. I mean, let's just face it, you've never really even been free before. What the gospel says is you are free to fail. You're free to make mistakes. You're free to live a robust life. You're free to come in last. You're free to find satisfaction in him. You're free. So what I would just submit to you is don't worry about what we're about to do with this, right? By the way, raise your hand if you need one of these. And that good-looking guy right there is going to give you one. As we take communion, and as if you're part of Legacy Church and you want to take communion, we invite you into this. If you're not a part of Legacy Church but you are a Christian, we'd love to invite you into this as well. Right? If you're just checking things out, don't worry about this. I would just submit that you would receive Jesus instead of this right now. Because what this is emblematic of is something bigger than this moment. As I said last week, this is not magical, but it is supernatural. It's not magical to accomplish anything in you, but it's supernatural to provoke something through you. Okay? Because what it's a symbol of is the table of preferences being laid down. It's the price tag of humility. This is what it costs. A broken body and spilt blood. That's how humble he was. That's how far he stooped. It'd be one thing if he just wrapped a towel around himself And wash jank off of people's feet but later on he'd crawl up on a cross and wash stuff off of my soul it's the level of stooping of a very good God so when we consume this it represents a king being consumed for us that's what it does it represents this pivot from God opposing us to God giving us grace And so as you take this, I want you to think about and remember our God came with a towel on to serve, not to be served. Not to be served. And we walk likewise in that shape. That's why Jesus says that in John 13. He says, this thing that I've done, I did it just to be an example. Washing feet, that's an example so that you guys would know how to handle each other. You guys would know how to handle the world. And then one day we're all going to get to look forward to a day... Where wine and bread are experienced together in the community of our king, radiant with his glory. And everything is new and everything is refreshing. And every second is better than the second that was just before it for eternity. We get to have that. So let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being good and for being so kind to us. And as we, as we take this bread. We do so in remembrance of what you have done and in hope of what you are doing. Lord, that when we take this, we're doing so in the same shape of a humble God that we would take to say we too are going to be humble. We remember what you've done and we're going to walk in the same shape. So we take this bread in remembrance of you. And Lord, with this juice, it's just juice But what it symbolizes is very significant for us. It's royal blood that was spilt on a hill of criminals by my hands, by my pride, my rebellion. My pride on display puts you on the cross and you spilled your blood for me. So Lord, as your church, we take this juice in remembrance of you and your blood that was spilled and looking forward to a new wine and a new heaven and a new kingdom. So, Lord, we thank you for, the, for for building this church. You built Legacy Church, and you were very thoughtful in how you did it. You've been very thoughtful and careful with us. And I just know, Lord, that when we re-enter, is where is is the the, the tide of the pandemic is receding. And we're trying to pick up vestiges of normal. Something that looks like rhythm from time to time. I just know we're going to get people in the same car, in the same household, in the same missional community, in the same service. They're going to be so different. They're going to have chaotic people with caustic people. Careful people with carefree people. And Lord, I know that without humility, it's all coming apart. We stand no chance We might do life together, but we won't like each other very much. But God, that you would call us together with a posture of humility. Where we could look at those who are different and they can be different. And we could lay down our demands and our preferences. So Lord, I know and what I pray is that as we sing and as we pray, that you would bring our pride under a magnifying glass. Where is it that we are most prideful? Where is it that we trust ourselves the most and where is it that we elevate ourselves over others the most? And Lord, that we would see your gospel fresh and new in a way that ministers to us and makes us free to be invisible and last. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.